everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we are on episode 16, cranking along. Today is uh, Saturday, February 6th. I hope you're all doing well. Uh, today we've got a great show for you guys. We've got a lot of topics lined up. We're going to be talking about uh, foreign aid when Biden, uh, MTG being kicked from House committees, brand new party, the Patriot Party, so lots to talk about. And uh, we actually have a special guest today, uh, apart from my co-host, of course, Pratik, always here. we got our, our friend Nick, who is an expert in the aerospace and environmental space. So how, how are you doing today, Nick? Oh, you're so kind, Tyler. I wouldn't necessarily call myself an expert, but it's great to be here again. I was on a couple episodes ago, right after, I think it was right after the inauguration. Actually, no, no not the inauguration. Right after the election, and we were yeah. still debating what was going to happen. So it's great to be on. Good to see you both today. Excited for the show. Well, thanks for being on, Nick. And Pratik, how you've been doing? You're going to lay out the initial topics, but how have you been doing lately? How are things going in North Carolina? Um, things are good. Um, it's been a slow time in business, but hopefully things move up. Stock market has been very volatile, so that's yeah. like great to get into. I, I mean, and GameStop and all that stuff. I wish I was on it. Could have been made a lot more money. Oh, but hey. oh don't wish too much. <laughs> I mean, I like, I'm not a Reddit person. I don't really care. I just want to try to make money in the stock market. And if I could have made money, I would have been happy. I got you, man. Nick, how do you feel about GameStop? Oh, man. Well, <laughs> uh, a little awkward that Pratik is talking about all the gains. I ended up being the bag holder. I took a big fat L on GameStop. I got in a little too late, bought into all the hype. I hope I've learned my lesson, but we'll see the next time a new meme stock comes around. Every trader's been there at some point or another, so don't feel too bad. I about just wish it. I was... bought in then. <laughs> yeah, but you got to sell at the right time or else you're you're losing yeah. a lot. So I know. It's okay, true. man. So with that, uh, uh, Pratik, kick us off with Biden halting U.S. support for the offensive military operations in Yemen. Yeah, definitely. So um, for our first story is about Biden and the Yemen stuff. So on Thursday, President Joe Biden announced the end of U.S. support for offensive operations in Yemen and named a new envoy to oversee the nation's diplomatic mission to end the civil war there. So he said things like the war should it has to end. And this was one of his first foreign policy addresses. So I wanted to talk about this. So with Yemen in 2014, they had a coup d'etat where their president, Ali, Ali Abdullah Saleh, had been in power since like the 1980s. And he was the first president of the new Yemen Republic in the 1990. So he was their main leader at the time. And he had been in power ever since Yemen had been in existence, basically. And he had a lot of issues with um, the people not being in support of what he was doing. He wasn't a very democratic leader. But he had the support of the Saudi Arabian, um, you know, government and the United States. So he'd been in power for a while. And so he was a puppet was, ruler, essentially. Exactly. He was like, um, what is it? Uh, he, he was he was kind of like Assad or Saddam Hussein or any yeah. of those kind of people. He was he was a dictator, but he was like in this perspective, he was an American ally. So America didn't have an issue with him. So he um, faced a popular revolution during the Arab springtime where it was led by these groups, a group of people called the Houthis. And the Houthis are like a militant group. They're like the Taliban of Yemen. So they're not that great, you know, in terms of trying to help people either. But they want to create a new government. And their slogan used to be, um, let me find their slogan. God is great, death to the U.S., death to Israel, curse the Jews, and victory to Islam. <laughs> 
know, so obviously America is not a big fan of these people because they keep I can see that Israel and death to America. But they had this protest in 2014. And since then, the Houdis and the Saleh loyalists who were against like the government at the time, they took control of the country in the Yemeni civil war. And then um, that led to the Saudi led intervention where Saudi Arabia decides that they're going to try to give the, get the government back to who they would like in power. And America decides to step in and help them out. So, America has its own interest in this because the GDP of this country is very poor. They're one of the most struggling countries in the world. Their economy is in the tank. They don't have anything really left in terms of their economy. As Millions they, of people starving, especially you know, children. Yeah, it's, it's a mess. And it's been a mess since that Saleh guy was in power, but it has been a mess after the hotties took over too. So it's not like it changed at all, but they just the government itself right now is because they're a terrorist group and they have their own things going on and they're somehow supported by Al Qaeda and they're being attacked from all over the place with groups like ISIS being involved and Assad's people being involved and America being involved and Saudi Arabia being involved. It's a mess. So Biden is right in the fact that maybe we should get out. And the argument could be made on either side. The other argument would be that, I mean, if America is involved, then America can make sure that they have established a democracy and help their country and a conflict. Because we're Saudi so good Arabia at that. Has its own agenda because they're neighboring Yemen. So there's also theorists that believe that Saudi Arabia eventually wants to take over Yemen. And if America is out, that basically allows them to be in control of that country. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on this? I, you know, I think puppet governments almost inevitably fail over time because it's not by the will of the people. It's by the will of some external. So if I'm from Yemen, for instance, and the U.S. and Saudi Arabia want to tell me who's supposed to be ruling me, I'm going to have a big issue with that. Like, it's very hard not to sympathize with that. But sitting here as an American, as far as stability for us, it's probably best we do stay in there. Um, but it just it just uh, being more of a libertarian person, I would say, generally, I avoid intervention. I don't think we need to be the, the global leaders, the global uh, whatever, like the global caretakers all the time. I don't think that's necessarily our role. Uh, Nick, what do you think about it? Yeah, so on Yemen, uh, I know you introduced me as environmental and aerospace, but uh, a little bit of a secret. I majored in international affairs in college, so I do know a little bit about this uh, conflict. So it's split between, you know, uh, southern Yemen and northern Yemen. They used to be independent states before Yemen actually came together. And so the south is backed by Saudi, as Pratik was saying. Um, but just in terms of American involvement, um, I think we have a history in this country. If you look at Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, um, a lot of our presidents have taken the approach of supplying military equipment and other aid to allies, such as Saudi Arabia in this instance, before committing American troops. And as a country, we're pretty isolationist. We're usually reticent to commit troops to a combat zone until our allies are on the brink of defeat. And I see uh, Biden's play as a continuation of this policy. So while he's withdrawing sort of the, the limited troop presence we have, in the region, he's still sort of committing some of the special forces to deal with those terrorist elements like Al Qaeda in the region. Um, and frankly, I think it's the right way to go. 
for me, I, there are three paths here. It's one, you continue down the same path, which, you know, over the past five years, as you mentioned, you know, over 100,000 Yemenis have died. Um, it's in complete chaos. People are starving. It's, it's not a good time to be in the area right now. And I think you either hard commit more troops, put troops on the ground, which I don't think anyone in the United States would tolerate, or you start to pull back and supply more aid, humanitarian aid to the country, while also, you know, since Saudi Arabia is nervous about a strong Yemen coming into play, backed by Iran, um, I think Biden's doing the right thing by also committing more defensive supplies and defensive arms to Saudi Arabia so that if the terrorists come into power, like you were saying, Pratik, and target Saudi oil refineries like they've done in the past, the Saudis have a way to defend themselves. And I think what he's doing is very reasonable. So I wanted to bring something more about this. So with the Yemen conflict, the main issue is not Yemen. What's been happening in many of these regions, whenever there's a big, big war within a region, within regional powers, like in this case, Saudi Arabia and Iran, there's all these pawns that are in play. So like no one, Saudi Arabia and Iran have never physically went to war, but they have all these different pawns in those, in that area that they play war with. So, I mean, this also includes countries like Israel. So Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Iran are the three major powers in this area, right? Iran and Saudi Arabia basically control more than half the peninsula of the Middle East. And then you have all these Gulf countries that are very small, minute, but have really strong economies because they're small and minute. And then you have countries like Yemen, which don't is like a literal arid zone where nothing grows and nothing is really... Has do they have oil? In terms of development. I'm sure they do, right? Not really. No. So oh, that's where that's where Yemen dies out too. Is Yemen doesn't have any mm. oil refineries or oil reserves. They didn't really build up with the natural gas like movement because they don't have really anything happening there. And like their whole economy is like fishing and farming. Like they're like an old style country that's kind of just left, and everybody left them behind. And what happened was is that. Because they were, so Syria and Yemen are both similar in that way. There's nothing that really happens in those two countries. Syria had Iran's involvement and Yemen had Saudi Arabia's support. So because they had their own support bases, a lot of their issues that happened, along with Iraq at one point, that all happened between those few three, four countries. So what happens with Yemen is that because their leader who they had, their puppet from the Saudi Arabians, they got rid of him. Iran, because they don't get along with a lot of those countries and they hate the United States, they support whoever we don't support or same with Saudi Arabia. So in that whole context, what has ended up happening is with the Hadi rebels coming in, even though they're like they're like the Taliban, basically, they're a religious militant group. Both of those religious militant groups are supported by Iran because America is opposed to Iran. And same with Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia and Iran don't get along. So, so it's what you're all saying, that big hodgepodge. So what and, you're saying is we need a we need we need to say death to America, and they'll go, oh, America's <laughs> now great, and then the conflict is over. <laughs> I get it. But yeah, so that that whole consequence of all that stuff is why all this stuff has been going on, and like, there's no right answer to this. I would just argue that in terms of America and what have we've done, because I'm a neocon, I believe that we need to look at America's interests first, just like every other country believes that they need to look at their own interests first. As an American citizen, I feel like we need to do whatever's best for America. And in that situation, 
obviously Saudi Arabia is not the cream of the pie. They've done a lot of bad stuff. They're not one of the best countries. And they're as bad as Iran, if whether we like it or not. The only difference is that they've been supported by America and America has alliances and diplomatic negotiations with them. And since Iran's new government came to power in the 1970s, they've been saying death to America. So obviously America's like, we need to cut the line there. So like in that whole consequence, I think what happens is that all these all these pawn countries basically, you know, lose out because Saudi Arabia and Iran are never going to go to war with one another. And all Iran wants is a puppet in Yemen. And all Saudi Arabia wanted was a puppet in Yemen. And because their puppet got lost, they need a new puppet. And that's this. Their so new group. You're saying it's a bunch of uh, like proxy wars. essentially. Yes. Okay. And like, obviously, my thought process is that America, if we're not involved, it's bad. If we are involved, then it's bad. But we're better off being involved because if we're not there, then Saudi Arabia has more control of what they're going to do. But we have control over Saudi Arabia to a a degree. We do, but Saudi Arabia is there. We're not there. They're in the military conflict. We got a few troops in the conflict. Saudi Arabia is like all in in there. And I mean, they're their neighbors. So they're obviously going to be more in control of what's going to happen after the Yemen, Yemeni civil war conflict is resolved. So if America is not there, Saudi Arabia basically plays their cards and does whatever they want. Iran, regardless of whatever Iran is, they're still blocked out by half the countries in the world that no one wants to have negotiations with them because they're in support. They're supporting all these terrorist groups like Hamas and the Taliban and all these other groups, including the Hadis. So they have their own conflict and Iran just wants to open up with the U.S. so they can open up their economy once again. So they don't really care as much about the Yemen conflict, which makes Saudi Arabia that much more powerful if we're gone. But again, it just seems like if we if Saudi Arabia is so heavily reliant on us, we should be able to dictate a lot of their policy. They could be our proxy. We don't even need to get into the weeds of Yemen, for instance. Right. And from that perspective, because we're increasing foreign aid, apparently. This goes on to our next topic, but Biden's increasing foreign aid while he's decreasing support in Yemen. So where's the foreign aid money going to? Do you know? Okay, so let me let me tell you what Biden said. So this was Biden's first major speech on foreign policy, along with the Yemen stuff. So he said, when we invest in economic development of countries, we create new markets for our products and reduce the likelihood of instability, violence, and mass migrations. When we strengthen health systems in far reaches of the world, we reduce the risk of future pandemics that could threaten our people and our economy. And he said this to the State Department. And he also said we need to defend equal rights of people the world over, of women and girls and LGBTQ individuals, indigenous groups, and people with disabilities and people of every ethnic background and religion. I honestly feel like a lot of his speeches are like any politician speech that just likes to rant about a bunch of stuff. People get all excited about it because their group gets in, gets named. I mean, it. Biden overall but, is a pretty cookie-cutter politician. Let's be real. Yeah. So, like, in my... So with that, like the idea is that he wants to increase foreign aid. And obviously being being me, me being me, I'm in support of that because I feel like America needs to be involved in other countries and what's going on in terms of development because America is like the God of all that stuff in the first place, because the UN is based here, the World Bank is based here, and we're the ones that are mainly involved in all those negotiations that happen with a lot of For the, the moment, policies but look at all the empires that have ever existed and why they fail. It's because yeah, they get too big. Fair, and that's the problem with but, investing everywhere. But who are the other options? 
if America's not there, the other options are Russia and China. I agree, man. If you look at it from a pure realist point of view, you want America to be on top just from the fact that you're an American. Like, if you were Chinese, then you might want China to be more powerful. If you were Russian, then you'd want the same thing with their country. But we're American, so we have to be pro-America. Like, that's just the way it is. The way I see it, it's it's like stocks. You need to control majority (laughs) share. You need to control the majority share of the power in the world. So I don't think we need to control the whole thing. But I think there is a balance. There's a middle ground where we can be more stable, less growth focused, less interventionist. The last thing I'm going to say that before, before we let Nick talk about this is that I feel personally that if America is not there, we are the only large democracy that is ever involved in all this stuff that happens. England is to some extent, but the UK has its own issues and they're, they've lost a lot of their own power since the European Union but, got involved. But how in good are we, are, are we at implementing these things? I understand the values of free trade and having democratic societies so we could trade with each other and all, all it's all seamless. But I'm not sure we've been so good about implementing that in other places, regardless of the values we have. We can't force those values on other people. That's the struggle I see. I we don't think you could. We can't force it, but we do. And if we try, we fail we, though. Whether whether we want to or we don't, it's worked in some places and it hasn't worked in some places. Like other examples, like with Truman, for example, when we fixed up Japan, Japan is a thriving economy right now. In the yep. 1950s, when we created the Marshall Plan to help them out, even Germany like, to an extent. Germany, <laughs> all the European countries in Japan worked out. The countries that didn't work out are the countries that have historically been controlled by large empires or the or like theocratic regimes or groups or dictators that are there installed by the regional supreme leaders so like in that situation like that's the issue with the middle east is that we can get rid of saddam hussein and then we could create isis and create all these big issues going on over there we can get rid of bashar al-assad and then the syrian republic will create their own government and that will potentially be a dictatorship like it doesn't solve anyway you can't solve this conflict but if america is not involved in the conflict it just is much worse because then we're not there like it's not that we do anything much when we're there but even if we're if we're not there that's like 10 times worse and that's my perspective and i mean Sorry. Hey, so Nick, your Nick, opinion, Nick just just generally broad based foreign policy wise, are you more of an interventionist? Are you more of uh, like what what are you what are you looking for? I think it depends on what you're talking about. I think when it comes to the military, I'm a little on the fence because if you look at the Balkans where we did get involved, Bill Clinton came in, bombed the. Sh- can can I curse on the show? Yeah, Bomb the shit out of people, and just overall like had a very strong approach and now you know there's tensions are much less obviously milosevic not really around the dictators of that time tito others they're they're not really a factor if you look at rwanda the u.s didn't do anything we just sat there while a genocide was going on and i think i mean to commit military force in that instance again i'm not sure but i think it's a mixed bag of you know damned if we do damned if we don't where again when we're bombing civilians in the balkans it's not like there was this rosy picture of america on the world stage um so when it comes to yemen i think we're kind of in a pickle i mean the majority of people in that country live in northern yemen which is controlled by the rebels not a lot of people live in the saudi backed and uae backed regime in southern yemen which is where the 
legitimate ruling government is, or at least as we recognize it. But I think as you were talking about in terms of promoting, you know, stability around the world, encouraging trade, that sort of thing, I think either path we take, we do need some sort of stability there. And it's, I think, again, split into two things, whether it's military or humanitarian aid. Jimmy Carter really did popularize humanitarian aid as a wing of U.S. diplomacy and intervention. And I think that's what the Trump administration started to do. Um, he doubled what Obama, the Obama administration was putting into Yemen um, when he got involved in 2017. Um, and I'm actually curious, Pratik, since you identify as a neocon as far yeah. as foreign policy, what are your thoughts on the Trump administration's big spending on humanitarian aid to Yemen? See, this is where I break up with the party. Like, we all have our own opinions. My opinion is that neither the Democrats or the Republicans really have, like, been solid on this perspective. I was a big proponent of the Obama's second um, term in terms of what he did with um, was it foreign policy. And I honestly feel like Trump, that was his big downfall, is that Trump decided that he wanted to leave from a lot of these places that you didn't really need to leave from. And... Even though we think on face value as Americans, oh yeah, Taliban's been, we've been there for like 20 years. We need to get the hell out. Or, you know, same with Obama in his first term when we got out of Iraq. A lot of those issues caused a lot more problems. We can make an argument, and most neocons would make this argument, that we shouldn't have been involved in Iraq. And the reason we would have made that argument is because we didn't have an end game. If we had an end game and we had a planned strategy on how we would get in and how we'd get out and what would be our goals after that, then it'd work out. Like the Kuwait war, for example. Like the first Bush, when he went in during the Kuwait war and what our game, game plan and our strategy was with what we did, that makes perfect sense. We got in, we got out. I mean, everybody was happy. People may have not liked Bush anymore because he didn't get reelected, but that's a whole different storyline. But like, I think what our foreign policy has been since the beginning of the 20th 21st century has not been that great and all of this stuff that we do now with whatever trump decides on what we want to do with the taliban or you know helping out the kurds and all this stuff it's all based on former policies that were done and the bush administration and the obama administration got involved in a lot of stuff that they shouldn't have gotten involved in because they didn't have an end game if you have an end game go for it but if you don't then you're wasting your time we're constantly so putting band-aids on things, like putting out fires, like a giant forest fire. And we're putting out little bits, but then it just pops back up. See, what I was, you asked what's the end game here. So with the Yemen thing, like when the Yemen civil war happened, like if they had a feeling that they wouldn't win the Saudi Arabians whenever they got involved, then we shouldn't have gotten involved. Obviously, it's bad for us because we don't have an ally in Yemen anymore, but that was not really an ally of, of America in the first place. It was an ally of Saudi Arabia who we're in somehow ties with because we don't like Iran. So we're, it's kind of like an ally, uh, like a crappy ally of another ally somehow becomes our friend just by chance. That's what happened here. And like with Yemen, Yemen needs support. Yemen needs a lot of foreign aid. They need support in them creating a new system. And that's not going to happen from Saudi Arabia being involved over there because Saudi Arabia has this law of its own interest in, at mind, which is why this conflict has gone on for six, seven years. And the Yemenis are winning. That's the other thing. We're not <laughs> winning in this war. They're winning in their own front and from the North Yemen people. 
So like, I think that America shouldn't have gotten involved in the first place if we didn't know how the strategy was going to go and what our plans were going there in the first place. But now it's like too late. You're already involved. You can't just leave. That's the problem where we fall into all the time. Pratik, it sounded like you reckon you just recognized the rebels as the official ruling government (laughs) and the legitimate ruling government of Yemen. I mean, in terms of power. Yeah. It's kind of like the people like the, what is it? them not recognizing China as a government for so long until they decided to recognize them. I mean, it is there. It's their government. It's like Israel is a government. People, half the countries in the Middle East don't recognize them as a government, but that's their country. They've been in there since the 1950s, whether we like it or not. And this is the same thing here. Whoever's in charge of that country and handles the affairs of that country is that country. Now, you can make an argument there's a North Yemen and a South Yemen, but like you can make that argument. Well, but I mean, it, it depends on the person. <laughs> what do you mean? All right. So when you say you can make that argument, like yeah. North Yemen was set up, I think in 1962 as its own independent state, you know, Ottoman empire falls 1918 after a while they get established, you know, British empire was ruling over South Yemen up until yeah. that point, they established themselves as a socialist communist um, regime country yeah. in uh, a few years later, I think it was in 67. Um, and so for, you know, 25 years, there were two separate countries operating in their own way. And then in the 90s, they come together. And it's not like all of a sudden, those tensions are just completely, you know, thrown to the side. And now they're just one big, you know, beautiful harmony of people working together. I mean, yeah. those are still going to remain. And I think we just see that playing out. And I think fun fact, bonus fact, my only uh, fact to close out what I'm saying I think JFK was actually um, in in 62. I think the United States was one of the first countries in the world to officially recognize North Yemen as its own legitimate country. So just fun fact. He actually split with Saudi Arabia on that back in the day. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's all we have. But like what I would argue is that with what you're saying, it all depends on how you view a country. If you define a country, if the UN defines a country as a legitimate country, then that's your perspective on what a country is. Some people, some theorists um, that are probably not your realists and they're probably not anybody that would affiliate with the Republican or Democratic Party, but may affiliate with the Labour Party in England, those kind of people, they would argue that a government is whenever you have, what is it, complete control over your population as a country. And if that's your way of defining it, you have your states, you have your nation states, and then you have your countries. So how you define it depends on your personal perspective. Somebody like me would argue that whoever, whatever government is in charge of handling the affairs of those people, if those people in that area believe that that's their country, then that's their country. I'm not here to argue that Palestine's not a country and Israel is a country. That's not my point. That's whatever America believes. America doesn't believe Palestine is a country. So you don't think the government is simply a monopoly on power that's recognized by the society that it it controls? It is. But the society themselves, whatever they believe is their government, that's their government. We can believe all we want on what we think is right or wrong and what the UN believes and what the EU believes and all these different groups and institutions. But like, it's kind of like Afghanistan. If the people in that area believe Taliban is their legitimate government, Taliban's their legitimate government. But but Who are we like to let's tell say them that that's not their government. Let's say like I'm a serf hundreds of years ago and there's a king. 
I mean, I could believe the king's not my governor, but he governs everything I do. So he is. Do you understand? That's how yeah, I see it. I mean, as, that's what I'm saying. There's not a right answer to this. It all depends on your perspective. Like everybody will have a differing perspective on what they feel is their legitimate government. Like there, I mean, in, in terms of like countries, like the United States is a little well, bit legitimate. Different. That, 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 that's different. Being legitimate yes. and having power completely different. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. And on to our next topic today, we're going to be talking about the Keystone XL pipeline and Biden actually taking the ax to that recently. So handing it off first to our environmentalist correspondent, Nick, how are you feeling about the situation? Do you know much about the Keystone pipeline? Is it really that bad for the environment or is it more of an optical play for him to just get support of environmentalists? So it's been a while since I've looked into the Keystone XL pipeline. As we all can remember, there were a huge amount of protests about it. The main concern being the pipeline spilling oil. Um, and other, other materials slash chemicals onto uh, what is tribal land. And to say, it was essentially one, who, who gets the right to decide what types of environmental hazards they want to live with? Is it the federal government that just comes in and says, hey, you community that we have sovereignty over, uh, we don't care what you, you know, think locally. Um, we have a national need. We need oil. We're going to build this pipeline, regardless of what you think in your local community. I mean, honestly, it was the result of many years of negotiations, I'm sure. And there were some spillages. But I think on the other side, the flip side um, is a lot of people or a lot of people who were laid off by this are claiming that, hey, if we don't have this pipeline, which honestly is a pretty safe way of transporting uh, this material, that we're just America still has oil needs. It's not going to disappear overnight. And you're just going to end up getting trucks and other ways of transporting this that are potentially less, less safe. And I think uh, to your point, whether or not it's just, you know, sort of a, a statement more than, you know, an actual, oh man, how did, how did you end up framing it, Tyler? Because I, I just said I, it was more optics than anything. I he think, just wanted I think people it to see that he was doing something about the environment. So they're like, yeah, he's doing good. By I me. think it's optics, but I think they're necessary optics. I think that in order to be taken seriously on his climate platform, where he appointed John Kerry, former EPA administrator, Gina McCarthy, and a lot of other heavy hitters to make this a big priority, that if he wants to be taken seriously, pick the most politically salient and recognizable environmental issue and take a stance on it. And I think that's what he did. I think you laid out the discrepancy pretty well, like the, the community and their right to have what is theirs. They've lived there for X amount of years and they, they should be justified to that land without it being toxic, people coming in, changing that. But on the other hand, energy is everything. The, the world runs off energy. It dictates so much of what we do in our life. And to for the United States to be energy dependent, we're less reliant on foreign nations. We don't have to intervene militarily as much. So it, it kind of cascades. So for this one little town to have that, uh, to be able to stop all of that, and for it to be more based off a statement than actual facts, I don't think it's probably the wisest decision. But Pratik, how do you feel about it? So this is an $8 billion pipeline. Um, it's been being built since 2010 or the oh, idea wait, they, they've invested like around. a lot of money right into this and that's just gone. yeah okay that's that's part of it and then the issue is so like they spent many years like creating the idea commissioning mm -hmm. it going through canada with the government of alberta making sure that they're able to actually make this happen then getting a bunch of okays from all these different governments in state governments and what they want to do and they were going to make their distribution center in cushing oklahoma 
So this would be one of the biggest pipelines of all time in the history of the United States, which would go all the way from Alberta, Canada, which is on the western side of the Canadian Canadian country, all the way down to New Mexico. So this is one of the largest pipelines in the history of pipelines. And so they've been talking about it. Obviously, you've had their people, uh, um, people from the environment side that are obviously against it. But the benefits of it are from the facts that you create a lot of jobs from it. You make America energy independent, as you said. And I mean, in many cases, it's probably it depends on who you ask, whether it's a good thing or bad thing. If I know if I was a hotel owner in that area and my hotel was in the way of that pipeline. I would get eminent domain money, which would give me as much value from that hotel that I would probably got from actually generating revenue from the hotel itself. Sorry, and that's that's because the government decided to put something under your land, so you just get paid. Exactly. So the part of it is just awareness. Democrats suck at this, in my perspective, because they just want to get their point of view across, and this is the same thing with the Republicans. But a lot of these tribal governments and a lot of these tribal lands and you know, different people involved in the area or people that live there have a lot of say in this in this whole thing going on. And people don't understand that because of eminent domain, they could make an argument that you're encroaching, encroaching on our land and the government has to pay them their price that they think would be for that land value. And obviously land value assessments and all that stuff is all subjective based on who does it and all that stuff. But in many cases, you get a lot more from return from what you would get from if you were to actually sell that land to some other person with a realtor. So there's a lot more potential benefits from that. And like, and so it's all depends on how you look at it. I mean, from a business perspective, if you had a land, if I, yeah, but if you had a house, if you had a house in that depends. pipeline and your water's toxic, you probably would feel different, you know, it, it depends. Because if the government is going to give me that much value for the house, obviously you not, you can't put a money value to everything, but if that house is old or whatever, or if that house, you've been in the house forever, or it's a brand new house, then if the government decides that they need to, you know, go through that house to make sure that their pipeline can go through, they will give you a lot of money for that property, which will be much more than if you were able to sell it on the open market. So and this, like, this is one of the biggest y'all... disputes of all time, land disputes. It's everything. It's, it's all of Israel. That's all it is. It's just a giant land dispute. It's like, who but, actually owns it? Who actually gets the rights to it? My main perspective is just that I think people need to be aware of that. I don't, and obviously Indian tribe nations have a little bit of different laws. They don't really pay taxes. They have a lot different things that they have to go through. Nick probably knows more about it than I do. But there are certain laws that are in place that allows them to operate as their own independent entities. So they have to go through much more of a process to make it happen. But if you're a regular citizen and you have a home or you have some business in that area, then many of us actual investors or entrepreneurs that decide to build things, we build where there's going to be a lot of new projects. Because if something gets built in that area, we make double the profit than we'd make from actually, you know, creating a business in that area and running it for like seven, eight years. So like you have to look at it in that perspective and the awareness is my issue. Well, I mean, we all have our opinions, whether it's a good thing or bad thing. I think in the end of the day, we're moving away from oil. We're moving to natural gas from the, you know, that perspective side of things. And we're not there yet. Right. We're just not close enough to that, that point. Like, I mean, when you look at cars, almost, almost every car runs off gas still, you know, but no, we still use, we still use natural gas for a lot of that stuff. A lot of these companies have all shifted their refineries and stuff to being primarily natural gas because it's more efficient 
and there's a lot less potential problems that can happen from it. And it's one is more sustainable and environmentally friendly. And I don't think we're at the green movement yet. Like, I mean, it was still going to take some time. Many of the countries that, you know, with the United States, you can make an argument that we don't really need a Keystone pipeline because we will become energy independent in the next 10, 15 years. But a lot of those other countries like China, India, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, all those bigger countries that have a lot of people, they're not there yet. And they're still going to pollute. And they're using Africa more. Yeah, they're using much more environmentally unfriendly subsidy clean fuel uh, environmentally unfriendly fuel to power their cars that is coming from legit oil and stuff coming from that area and america is not really involved in that process as much because we're still a natural gas provider in the end of the day so i think it's you can make an argument whatever yeah so nick any closing thoughts on that you know i think it's we laid it out pretty clear but uh any closing thoughts yeah i think look we already talked about the international side on in the other segment, so I won't get too into that. Um, but from the domestic side, when you're just looking at jobs, the well-being of citizens, and how the country is going to move forward, Pratik, I absolutely agree that we aren't there yet on the green energy stuff. But if we keep committing billions of dollars and all this manpower to these oil projects, then it's just going to keep delaying how quickly we can progress. So I think it's important for the... Well, what Biden's doing here is just taking over where Obama left off, which is sort of his whole, you know, modus operandi. That's what he's doing across the board in many respects. Um, You know, Obama uh, actually halted the Keystone XL pipeline in 2015, I believe. Uh, Trump, by executive order uh, in 2017, I believe it was 2017 or 2018, said to go ahead with it again. And so Biden comes in and says, all right, well, we're just going to revert back to the Obama decision and halt it. But my closing thought would just be, if we want to become a world leader in green, like clean energy jobs and technology, it's better to start now than to continue to invest all this money in oil, where, as you're saying, we're doing a lot better than a fair amount of countries out there. And I think it's time for the U.S. to take a leadership role, get out ahead of the pack and start being a leader in the technologies of tomorrow. That, so you, so you, that's so you my think we should bite the bullet essentially and say we're going to take a hit at some point in this transfer from uh, like oil yeah. to like more electronic, and whatever. I don't even think it's that much of a big hit. I mean, a lot of people are out of work right now. And I think what is the saying? We're all a Keynesian in a foxhole for economics. So I think having these big um, public works projects, infrastructure projects, which is what pipeline projects are. I think if you shift those jobs towards clean energy jobs. A lot of the installation jobs, I mean, the maintenance jobs, operations, the rest of it, it's a lot lower, both in oil and in clean tech. But if you're purely looking at it from getting people employed, getting them good salaries and putting them to work on big infrastructure projects, green jobs actually take up a lot more need for manpower and employment. So I think on that front, you know, while a lot of people are unemployed due to COVID, I think you can sort of shift that through. Now, the argument could be, the government never does a good job of allocating, you know, for example, telling the coal miners, oh, we're going to get you new jobs. Don't worry about it. That's a load of shit. That's yeah, not true. That's not going to be the case. And it sucks that you have to frame it that way. Um, and it's it's always a bad, bad, you know, it leaves a sour taste in your mouth when the government sort of picks winners and losers, losers in the economy. But I think that we do that every day through regulations anyway. So 
as far as so you think it has to be government led like i the way i see it is i see it almost entirely as the entrepreneurs are driving this it's not the government that's driving it they could throw money but they're only helping so much it's really the innovative private companies that are doing breaking real ground and that ground cannot be broken by the government because they don't have the expedited incentive that a private company does they don't have quarterly calls that they're responding to well, I think government does have to get, you're right. Government has to get a lot better, particularly around um, the long lead times there are for permitting. For example, wind projects take a long time to get through the permitting process. Um, I think you can cut a lot of red tape there. Um, but when it comes to something like climate change, like energy independence from a national perspective, I think you need, I think you do need government. And a lot of state governments have been stepping up. Massachusetts, New York, California, others. And I think if the federal government were to set a baseline, which they already do, they do for everything. Um, I think from that place, the marketplace of which states have better firms to take, you know, take us to the next level. I'm all for that approach. But I do think we need a broad push in the right direction. And I would agree on the infrastructure front. That, that just seems so crucial. And I was expecting Trump to do that. I actually thought that was his big play. And part of it would have been in the, the uh, clean energy side. It just inevitably would have been that because we're developing infrastructure in 2021. It would have been that. Uh, Pratik, any final thoughts on the environment? Or do you think we should uh, continue on to our next topic, MTG, being removed um, from the committees? One, one more thought. I would just say that it all depends on your perspective. So you like green energy stuff. So that's going to be your perspective. But like from my perspective i'm all about you need to limit the amount of government involvement that you need and entrepreneurship will build itself out as it does like and that's probably how i look at it with the invisible hand other people have their different opinions about how they feel about that kind of stuff and how much government needs to be involved i feel government plays its role by subsidies and them subsidizing certain industries that they want to win and they don't subsidize other industries that they don't want to win but it all varies like solar energy and green energy is not there yet. And the reason it's not there yet is because there's just there we have so we're so inclined to what we already do right now that a lot of things have to change for that system to change. And I think that if I mean, in the ways that you go about it, a lot of people wouldn't like it. Like if you really wanted to promote, you know, electric vehicles, what you have to do is the government if you want to make the government the main player in this has to subsidize all these different gas of different like oil companies that have their gas stations everywhere to install electric stations that their systems are already there. The private companies are already there. All you have to do is put their one, you know, electric charge car charging stations or whatever in that area. And they're still making money. But then you as an individual driver, you can make a decision. Oh, do I want to have an electric car? Do I want to have a oil powered car or like you know do i want to use diesel for example it all varies but they, they want to take away the decision it seems like though yes, they don't want you to have that decision i that's would, what i'm hearing i would rather in the, in in terms of like the private industry of the world whenever you have any entrepreneurship of any kind like people themselves decide that they're going to go about trying to make this new kind of thing, which creates more jobs because they're trying to be more productive and increase the amount of revenues that they're able to get. And they have solar companies and they have green energy companies that are around. Like First Solar is a really large company. Like that, they've been all about this solar energy stuff. And eventually you will kick out all these small players and create big players. And I would rather that stuff just happens on its own 
then the government getting involved in trying to pick what companies they want to do to what, what they what, what they feel like what is best. It, and you and know, so, I think Nick draws the line slightly differently than both of us, and that's just yeah. where we're. And, and it's not it's not a right answer or a wrong. Yeah, answer. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I agree with you. I agree with you, and I especially agree on your point. I think government should stop heavily subsidizing industry as much, and that means the countless amount of dollars they burn subsidizing the oil industry. I think they should stop that. Let the free market decide. Do you know the Yemen, uh, like the revolution in like the 60s happened because they stopped oil subsidies? <laughs> so I don't know, man. You could do that, but let's see what happens. All right. Well, let's move on to our next topic. U.S. House exiles Marjorie Taylor Greene, a.k.a. MTG, from committees. So let me give you some baseline thoughts about this. So Marjorie Jean, uh, Taylor Greene um, was a representative from the Georgia's 4th District. She has a history of making a lot of controversial comments. She was one of the first like open QAnon supporters. She's a Trumpian she said, cool, through and through. That, that's there, but let me, let me explain other things. Because that's part of it, but almost all the Republicans, at least like like a good bulk of them are all Trump supporters. So that's not necessarily the case. But she said things like the Parkland shooting was fake um, and made a bunch of other random comments that were like, you know, non-factual comments and would, would was putting them on Facebook, on Twitter. And, my thing, and she also made anti-Semitic and Islamophobic comments. So that stuff happens a lot. You had Omar, what was it? I forgot her name. Uh, was a representative Ilhan Omar? Yeah. She said a bunch of anti-Semitic yeah, stuff, and then like Democrats were defending it. That stuff's bad, and it's bad regardless of however you look at it. But the main issue with what happened with Marjorie Green was that she also decided that she was going to file their imp- articles of impeachment tour against Biden, which riled up a lot of the Democratic people that were in office because obviously they like Biden and he's their leader. So that's that. And then you got these other 11 Republicans that are in the House that are just, you know, not real Republicans. They're just kind of there. So they voted against Marjorie Greene just because they don't like her because she's a Trump supporter. And that was and the, basically she kind of threw herself in the boat in, in, in problems because she had her own. She said a bunch of stupid things that were not factual on Twitter. And then Twitter also does a bunch of stupid things by removing people because she still does have freedom of speech and her constituents did put her there. And if they don't like her, then they'll hold her accountable and kick her out. But the House voted 230 to 199 to remove her from her education and budget committees, basically making, uh, what is it, Miss Green, just a representative with actual no, like, you know, decision-making power other than just having a vote on whether she wants to vote something or not so she's not an important person anymore in the house yeah but that's a responsibility not a right you know yeah 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 but my thing is that that stuff should be allowed to be you know the constituents should be able to make those decisions whether or not mtg is a good person or bad person whether she said good things or bad things or whether she's racist or homophobic or xenophobic or whatever that's the constituents responsibility in the next two years because you know the house votes every two years and it's like yeah the same bozos there forever like they're going to hold her accountable if she said something stupid or whether they don't like what she but on the same hand all the upper other representatives of all the other districts that oppose this stuff it's their duty to get her off of a a, like a power position is it 
It's um, their constituents' I, decision to decide. Yeah, but they it voted them in. Happened. So if we're going to use representative democracy, yeah, this yeah. is just the rules we have to play. It by. has happened where in the past, um, I think I read about this. So For Paul Ryan had this situation with Devin Nunes. Uh, Devin Nunes was involved in some, you know, you know, some committee and he was involved in something going on. And he had to make the decision whether or not to cut ties with Devin Nunes from being on a certain committee or not. But it's never really happened that some representative has just been kicked out of all committees. They can re- get reall- reallocated to a different committee. But this is part of Democrats being pissed off that she tried to impeach Biden and Republicans getting pissed off that she's making a bunch of outlandish comments, making her look bad. And then also the other 11 Republicans that all voted against her because she sides with Trump and they don't like Trump. And they're just they're probably going to get kicked out of office the next term election, too, because they're not weren't in support of Trump. They're just trying to throw their own voice out there by removing her from those committees. So mm-hmm. it's all depends on perspective. Yeah, what it does. Um, um, I. <laughs> Some of the things she said, yeah, completely ridiculous. Like she said some anti-Semitic stuff. It was just outrageous. But there were some other things like believing in that 9-11 was a conspiracy. I could like, you're, you should be able to have that opinion because that's, I mean, that's not really hurting people now. Like the Sandy Hook shooting saying that wasn't real. That's legitimately yes. hurting people. But 9-11, there are so many questions that were left unanswered to even question it and be called a conspiracy theorist and get kicked off for that. I think it's a little ridiculous, but she did make other comments that were much more incendiary. She yeah. said she wanted to like put a bolt in the head of like whoever, like that's great. Like that person should not be in a position of power. And that's where the responsibility of the others comes in. If, if I want to be surrounded by peers and we all want to move towards a collective good, if one person's talking about shooting someone else in the head, they probably shouldn't be in a position of power. Hopefully they don't get elected again. And I, I'm not, I'm not saying this isn't political. I'm not saying the Democrats are right. I'm not saying they're doing it for the right reasons, but I can understand why it's all happening. What are your thoughts about this, Nick? Yeah. So, I mean, from my perspective, you look at the house 2011 to 2019 Republican control. What happens after the midterms then the Republicans lose a lot of seats and Steve King, who made similarly comments, he got stripped from his committees. So the Senate, 2015 to 2020, Republican majority. I mean, nothing happened there, but I see this as pretty parallel to what happened um, in 2019. But Pratik, you probably know a little bit more about it than I do. I was actually, I actually brought up Steve King's Wikipedia page. Oh yeah, I promote Wikipedia. Never mind. Oh yeah. So I was looking at Steve King. I was remembering this. This guy had been in power from 2003 to 2021. He was the first. It was Iowa's fifth congressional district. He was the first openly racist and anti-immigrant and white nationalist representative that was in power. And neither the Republicans or Democrats liked him on face value from either side of the aisle and anybody that was in office. But her, con- his constituents must have liked him because he got elected a bunch of times until he lost in his recent primary against his Randy Finestra guy. So um, I don't know. Like my, my thought process with that stuff is that I just feel the constituents should be the final call. Like whether or not we like the person, whether we don't like the person, you removing them from committees is basically you almost stripping them 75% of their power, right? So if that's their power and that's, I mean, and their constituents voted them in, like I kind of align with what the Kevin McCarthy comments were on this situation is that like that her constituents can get rid of her if they don't like her in the next two years. And people do get kicked out. Steve King is an example of a person that didn't get kicked out, but I mean, it does happen. 
So, like, I just feel whether or not, like, I'm not condoning any of her comments. Most of her comments were outlandish and they're horrible. Like, the only one that may be questionable is the election stuff, but like, all the other stuff's not even questionable. Like, you can't promote killing somebody and you can't promote, you can't argue that the Parkland shootings didn't happen or Sandy Hook shootings didn't happen because they did happen. Okay, but Pratik, let's say you send your kids to school and the principal says he's going to put the bullet in the head of the other principal. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. But, I would the say more funding for our district. The principal, <laughs> the principal and a congressperson is different because the congressperson gets elected by their constituents. A principal is like, it's kind of like if I was a boss and I had an employee and my employee is making a bunch of racist comments, I'm the boss so I can fire my employee. In this situation, the system's different because it's an elected official and that person, the only person, people that can hold them accountable is their constituents. Now, if that was, I mean, if that was any other person that was there and it was the same kind of system, the situation that happened, their constituents would hold them responsible. And Steve King is a weird exception to the story, but in the most part, like, it's still the constituents' responsibility. Totally, but it's and, not the constituents' job at all to dictate who's on what committees. It's not even their purpose or job. It's the it, other congressional is, people. But when you elect a representative, you're electing them so they can serve on committees. Well, now, they're not they doing a good job if they they're can, saying incendiary comments and not being able to that, accomplish anything because they're not good at their job. I mean, we can't say that. She was only there for like a week. But well, so yeah, but that's point, why. She wasn't good at her my, job. She's only there for a week. <laughs> <laughs> my, my point is just that. Like, I don't know what to say. Because, because you elect them, you they have to be put on certain committees. You can remove them from a committee and put them on a different committee. That's all in their purview. But... You're basically just having a representative who only is doing who's only doing twenty percent of the work because you basically stripped them of eighty percent of what. So you think it's like a mob thing? It's like we the the mob the the mob and cancel. It's almost like a cancel culture within politics. It's like we're gonna cancel you to make sure you can't accomplish anything. But that's they do that stuff all the time, right? That's that stuff happens in inner politics, but they never really go out of their way to try to remove them from committees, with the only exceptions of Steve King and MTG. So like I, I feel- I'm gonna be honest. It would be it would be hard if I was in Congress. It would be hard for me to want to keep her on a committee after she said I'm gonna put a bullet in the head of one of my colleagues. Like that just it's end game. Like you're gone. That, that's that's fair, but it's it doesn't matter whether whatever any of these Congress people feel. All that does. matters is they voted the in constituents of that district want. But they voted in the representatives exactly. who hold a majority share. And if your one congressional district does not want to fit into that mold you're gonna get shut out and that's how politics works you get shut out but you can't get kicked out of committees there is a bunch of rules on this stuff because okay i'm not quite just to be clear i'm not so sure on the exact rules so that's you you, like what our past precedent has been is that if there have been committee members that have some aligned interest with that committee then they can get removed from that committee because it's a conflict of interest and then they can get reallocated or removed to a different committee that's happened um but it's not that this doesn't happen that often and it only happens in certain rare circumstances but my issue is just that the constituents put her put her there they voted for you know they voted in their primaries they voted in their general election they probably ran against the democrat and she won right so now she's there if she sucks at her job she won't be there in two years because her constituents don't like her but that's not. The but other why is she people's... guaranteed two years? If you show incompetence in the first week, why should I give you two years to try because to? Because the constituents make it up? put her there. 
You're not I getting get that. this. The no, constituents elected her. So Nick, if she Nick, gets kicked you, out, it's the constituents' Can you bridge this gap? Because I feel like I'm trying to make sense, but maybe I'm not. I'd like to hear your thoughts. I think both of you are. I mean, from my perspective, frankly, I wish there was more shame and ostracizing done in society at large, <laughs> which maybe sounds a little toxic. But for example, like Al Franken gets accused of sexually assaulting and groping. I think it was like eight women or something came out and said this. And he had the shame to resign. And his own party said, hey, Frank, get the fuck out of office. You're ruining it for the rest of us. Get out of here. We can't stand for our principles and beliefs with you still in here. So I think if the, it, it, frankly, it depends. I think what Pratik is saying about the constituents makes sense. But I also think it matters a lot within the context of the Republican Party and how they want to move forward. Like if they think that kicking her off of committees when they agree, when some of them agreed with the Democrats to kick her off the committees, I think that's one thing. But I don't know the the way it's they've gone about it. I think is so partisan, and it's not clear to me whether, like for example, it would be a very different thing if all the Republicans got together and said, "Okay, we're not going to tolerate this. We're going to kick her off the committees." If that because was a Republican decision, this would be a totally different conversation. But because the Democrats were the ones pushing for it. I think there's going to be a very different outcome. And who knows, maybe it pushes some people uh, to join the, what is it, the new Patriot Party that the president? That's our next, that's our next yes. topic. So that was a great segue. So yeah. our next topic is um, the Patriot Party. So Donald Trump, um, our former president, who people still like to talk about all the time in all the news channels and all the evening night shows, um, has decided, has discussed creating a brand new political party. This political party will be called the Patriot Party. And much of this has happened after the January 6th riot, where many of the Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, condemned Donald Trump for his comments, which may or may not have been made. We don't know. There's no footage of it. But apparently he incited a riot. And we've talked about this in the past. There's not that much evidence saying that showing that he incited the riot, but people believe he it. definitely was so, not careful with his words. Let's just yes. we can accept that. Right. So, yes. So this this incited this new movement to create a new Patriot Party. And this is all thanks to many of the Republicans that are there, like Mitt Romney and Susan Collins, that are just Republicans in name only and don't really do anything that the Republican Party wants. And I mean, at least in terms of their constituents, because their constituents voted for Donald Trump. So this is a brand new party that would be created. Um, and third parties have never really, you know, gotten anywhere. But this is one of the first third parties in the history of the United States since the Bull Moose Party in the 19, um, I think, 13 election when it was FDR, or not FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and uh, the oh, socialist dude Taft to create a brand new party. So that was the Bull Moose Party. And this is the first party since then, which would be like a major third party that would be entering an election. That isn't involving like, you know, the Green Party or any of those people that only get a certain amount of votes. So that's that's that. So it's like there's a lot of new pushes towards this. What are y'all's thoughts? Do y'all think that a third party is a good idea? And we will talk about how it all ranks up in a poll in the next segment. Yeah. But all right, I'll take this first and I'll hand it off to you, Nick, for sure. Um, so. I am all for a new party. We constantly talk on the show, the need for new parties, because when you only have two ideas, the likelihood you have the right ideas is very small. You only have two ideas. You should get more ideas. So more parties make sense. I'm not, and I, you know, this is going to hurt the Republican party for a while. 
Like they're yeah. large. I know they're taking from the Democrats, the independents, the Republicans, but it's largely from the Republicans. It's going to hurt the Republican Party for a while. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how solid and stable it is because I don't see what values Trump provides that's going to lift a party up and make it substantial. Because what he's all about is not values. It's his personality and demagoguery and populism. Those aren't something you build a party off of. That's what I fear. Regardless of if he did stuff you agree with or not, the reasons for him doing that are very important because that's why you believe in the party itself moving forward. I'm not sure I see what that concrete belief is that I can go, this is what we now need. I should be a part of this. I'm not sure I see that yet. So hopefully that will be able to develop over time. Again, I really think third party is inevitable. Uh, Either it's going to just take over the current party or we'll have maybe three options one day. But yeah, those are my thoughts. How about you, Nick? Yeah, so I think I think Republicans are kind of in a pickle on this one because for the Patriot Party, which first of all, like people pointed this out months ago. I think if you Wikipedia, it, it says that it was an American Socialist Party in the 1960s with the exact same name. So I think that's a little a little funny. Um, but I think, like you were saying, Tyler, how you're building it around one man and his personality and his following, but I'm not necessarily, I think they can pivot if they don't make it about Trump because a lot of Republicans in the down ballot races during the, during the election that we just had in 2020 outperformed Trump in their elections and won in places where the president lost. So I think even if you detach his personality from it, sure, he's, you know, pretty charismatic. He can bring people together at these huge rallies and get them going and get everyone hyped up and excited. But I think those core ideas of isolationism, you know, America first on the economic side, as far as withdrawing from all these, you know, trade agreements that, you know, his own Republican predecessors helped put in place. Okay. Um, I think breaking away and starting your own sort of right wing populist party, formalizing that aside from the Republican party, and we sort of have the Libertarian Party, but like Pratik was saying, just like the Green Party, they're not doing doing well at all. So I think if this thing legitimately picks up steam, it could be a major force, but I could only see it siphoning votes off from the Republican Party. And I feel like even if they don't go anywhere, it's still going to force that Republican Party to reevaluate themselves and sort of be birthed in fire um, for the next 10 years and try to you know come up with some new policies that can get those voters back into the fold. So what's interesting is Pratik actually, I think has some statistics to do with the actual uh, polling data for the Patriot party and pulling voters in from independent and Democrats. And there is, do you, do you have the statistics up Pratik? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, so out of the voters surveyed, hopefully some channel doesn't start talking in there. Um, so out of the voters surveyed, 37% said they would likely join the new party from the Republican party. There was a survey conducted among 340 registered Republicans, and I can't, I don't know exactly the amount of Democrats that were involved in this number, but yeah, it says 15% of Democrats and 28% of independents would be inclined. It doesn't say they would join, but they would be inclined to join the theoretical Trump-centered party if there was a new party, and it would basically create uh, the second largest political party outnumbering the Republican party at the moment. 
for in the current scheme of things. So if that were to happen from a political perspective, Democrats would win majority of their races unless they also had a split from their party with the progressives and the you know moderates. And they partially but, do. We'll see what happens with that. But the DNC is a lot more in control. The RNC sucks at doing what the RNC does. The RNC can't, doesn't have their crap together. And the issues are that the DNC, regardless of whether half their Democratic population doesn't like Pelosi or Schumer or any of your old establishment status quo Democrats, in the end of the day, the representatives that they put out, like AOC, join in line with their party whenever their vote matters. And the Republicans are different. The Republicans are all about, you know, how can we be against the status quo, be against the elite, and have people that have diversified opinions within their party. Democrats likes to keep those diversified opinions in a loop where they have a control over how their party, you know, makes decisions. Regardless of whether individual Democrats believe something or don't believe something. They're more unified. Representatives, yeah. they're more unified. Republicans don't have that. And I mean, as is what Nick was saying, like with how their system is and what's going on, a lot of people like me would join the Patriot Party, even if I don't agree with 60% of what their party says, just on the basis that 65 million Americans voted for Donald Trump and the Republican Party doesn't care. So like the issue with that is that if there was all these people that were in support of Trump and there's there's in support of this party, which now has a brand new agenda and the GOP has been agenda list for the last, last 10, 15 years. I mean, you would get a large push from a lot of these people that aren't social conservative Republicans. So you're, you know, economic centered Republicans, you're, I mean, you're people that are about for America first, that kind of stuff splits off. With the Patriot Party, the main thing is that we don't know what their values are yet. I mean, they're still going to go through their process. The RNC is dismantled, basically, because they don't really have core values and half their party is for Trump and half their party isn't. So, like, I just feel that a third party, even though it won't get us anywhere, obviously, like, Republicans will lose and the Patriot Party will lose. Many of us people that are regular people would rather be in support of a party that actually has values and does things that are benefiting their constituents and their and listening to their constituents' viewpoints. And we don't know what the Patriot Party will do, but that's the main criticism that a lot of us have of the Republican Party is that the Republican Party doesn't really care about what we want. They just like to play like, you know, sucker to the Democrats and just go against everything they do. I wouldn't and- be so sure that they fail. Like I, yeah, like yeah. I, I feel it viscerally. Like there's something in the air that something's changing, mm-hmm. whether we know it or not, or want to believe it or not. Something's changing. I would, it seems like the both parties seem to be crumbling, and something's yeah. gonna form out of that. And like uh, Nick was alluding to before, it's like the phoenix being rebirthed. Like, like it's there's gonna be GOP. there's gonna be there's gonna be something new, and maybe it, it'll take time to form the values of that party. But it's just funny for me to like look back in a hundred years. Are we going to be looking back at Trump? Like we look back at Abraham Lincoln, you know what I mean? That's when I say <laughs> values of the person you're founding the party around matters. Maybe we can make up a, a story about Trump. Maybe Trump will be <laughs> this great savior in the future. I don't know. We make that argument, but the democratic party before, before after it became split from the democratic Republican party, where it became the Whigs and the Democrats, their founder was also Andrew Jackson. So like, it's, true. <laughs> it's not it's true. like, I mean, these parties are there forever because there's not do we, our main issue is we don't have a parliamentary system in the United States with the parliamentary system. You vote on parties in our system. 
you vote on whoever the DNC and RNC appoints to win their primary or like run in their primaries and whoever wins, they become the candidate. So the issue is that we're much less of a democratic system compared to a lot of other democracies around the world. And that sounds horrible in terms of me saying that as an American, but like you compare us to countries fact. like Germany, India, England, like they have their, their systems are a little bit different or even France where like you're electing people, you're electing parties and there's a variety of parties and their parties to the point who their leader is. It takes us a lot more out of the process, but it creates much more unity within their party. So it depends on what you want or what you don't want. But that's one of the main downfalls. Like, I wouldn't say we need to change up the whole system, but the system is going to have a lot more flaws because we operate on an electoral college basis and we don't operate on, all right, let's vote on parties and you can have as many parties as you want. The parties will join coalitions and then that will be the brand new viewpoint of the party. It's true, but I think you have a better chance of introducing a new party than changing the entire system. system. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> You got any final thoughts, Nick? Sorry, I went on a rant. Can't you wait, you, Nick, you're, you're, you're muted. Sorry about that. So the only thing I would contest in there is I think at present day, Americans across the board are so distrustful of political institutions and other big institutions in this country that if we were to shift to a system, Imagine if the Republican Party nominated an insider like Jeb Bush to win in 2016 and run. That's, uh, that's essentially what you're advocating for. And I don't think yeah. well, he's not anyone advocating. He's saying I'm not, some I'm people not, have that. I'm just system. saying that's yeah. the system that other people have. That but you were saying it would be better. Happen. You, you did saying, say it could work better. I did. I'm <laughs> saying that the more parties there are, the more different views that come across. And people, if you're like an environmentalist, you're obviously a Democrat and you're not a Democrat because you care about all the values of the Democrat. You're a Democrat because you're an environmentalist. Same with the Republicans. I'm a business person. Most business people are Republicans. We're, we're Republicans because we're business people. I'm not a social conservative. I'm a Republican because I'm a business person. And my point is that if there were a variety of different parties, then every party will have its own movement and they will have like its own supporters and you will be a member of that party. And, and you're not tied. Yeah, exactly. Tied. So it's like I'm this 20% chunk and I can hook up with this 35% chunk. And even if we have completely different views, we're going to find common ground to be unified. We yeah. really don't have an incentive as Republicans and Democrats to unify. We have an incentive to be bigger than the other guy. And you know what, what I mean? happens a lot is that people become demagogues. So like we talk about candidates becoming demagogues, people become demagogues. They create so the demagogues. Yeah. You, if you're a Democrat, that means you have to believe everything that the Democratic Party says line by line. Same with the Republicans. Donald Trump was different in that matter because if you had somebody like Jeb Bush become president, I mean, the Republican Party would still be the same. Like Donald Trump ended up changing up a lot of the things within the party because he was a populist. Same thing if Bernie Sanders was your candidate for president and he won for the Democratic but Party. But I guess, isn't that a good thing? It, I mean, that, it, that's it, the real question. It depends. It depends. There's goods and there's bads to all that stuff. There's pros and cons to all those different conversations. Sure. I would rather you have somebody that is elected because of a primary process and you choose somebody based on who you think is the right candidate for the position. But 
there's also the argument that you're not representing all of those different views and values because you're stuck to two parties. And if you're not a member of the one party or the other party, you're never going to win in an election yeah. because the DNC and the RNC itself has so much power. Nick, I see you leaning in over there. What do you have to say? No, I think, look, I think it's a beautiful thought. We have these coalition governments. Everyone's viewpoint gets represented. Kumbaya, the perfect <laughs> democracy. But I think if you look across the world, there there are usually two dominant parties That's in true. every political system. And, you know, of course, that shifts over time. Um, but I think even when you do have these broad coalition governments that form together, which I don't know if technically we have it today. You could say, oh, people like Bernie Sanders, he's an independent. I think you have some libertarian guy who is an independent who sides with the Republicans all the time. But they ultimately um, bow down. Like Biden you're right. ultimately. I ultimately. Mean, uh, but isn't yeah. that sort of the coalition where you have the two centers yeah, no, of right. gravity That's and fair. they pull in their sides? Yep. So I think, honestly, personally, I am in favor of expanding the power of third parties and the influence of third parties in the United States. But I think those same sort of bubbles are going to form just around the third parties. Like if the Patriot Party becomes a thing, I guarantee they will form a coalition with most Republicans and vote the same way on most issues. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, but that, guess what? They have the option to vote with the Democrats. They're the swing vote at that point. Like, I would take that, you know. So with that, let's move on to our final topic, if that's okay with you guys. We're good. Yep. Everybody talked yep. about Patriot Party. All right, last party. We're all, we're all part right. of the Patriot Party. Not, not We've agreed. Party. Okay. <laughs> not last party. Sorry. Last um, topic yes. is Biden says Trump should not receive access to briefings, which are traditionally offered to presidents even after leaving office. So basically, Biden is saying that due to Trump's erratic behavior, he should not have any access to any intelligence briefings. And every president till date has had access to intelligence briefings. So because Biden has this thing against Trump, obviously, and, you know, Trump has this thing against Biden, this is how the great uniter takes his movement and his vote further on by trying to make sure that he can kick Trump out of all intelligence briefings. So hopefully that was more exciting than it probably was well, in the storyline. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what this is all about. <laughs> I could I could either be, look, fuck Trump, just in general. My, my constituents say fuck Trump. I say fuck Trump. So fuck Trump. He gets nothing. On the second hand, I'm thinking if Trump wants to start a party, it's probably valuable for him to have these briefings for whatever reason. I'm, I'm sure there's some information he can get out of these that would be very, very valuable for him. Also, what gives Biden the right to say that an ex-president can't? That's, That's what a dictator point. does. And this is something that I've noticed with Biden. He's more than willing to throw out executive orders and tell you what is is. And to In me, that's- two weeks. That's more. What's interesting to me, from my perspective, as more of a libertarian guy, he's he's more authoritarian than Trump is. He simply is by action. I look at actions more than words. I believe in existentialism. I believe you live out your truth, and that's Biden constantly lies with his words and will go behind your back and do something else. It's very authoritarian. I think this that's a a leech on the Democratic Party that they need to figure out. At least he hasn't gaffed recently. At least he hasn't gaffed recently. We haven't had any Biden gaff topics of the day because Biden quit gaffing. He's just like, he also just well, doesn't go public. Times, I just I just write all these executive orders because screw the system. Dude, you think he's I writing anything? <laughs> he's sitting in bed while he's got ten guys writing things for him. He's not yeah. doing anything. He's a he's a yeah whatever. <laughs> Sorry. What's your thoughts, man? Sorry, Nick, for shutting just down. Just going off for a little bit. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> I think honestly, I think it's as simple as a quid pro quo. When Biden was 
when Biden got, um, you know, the votes in the general election, I think, well, not think the Trump administration said, we're not going to give you your daily briefings that we've every other presidential candidate who's won has gotten. And so he gets into the office and he just turns it right around. He says, all right, well, I'm not going to observe the same custom. I'm not going to give you the briefings. So honestly, I think it may be as childish and simple as that. I will say, um, I mean, for me, the first thing that comes to mind is when Trump was meeting, it was either with the Russians or someone else, and he disclosed the name of an Israeli source oh, yeah. and got an Israeli um, spy. Yeah, got one of the CIA agents, or it was either the agent itself or a source killed because he met, he went and blabbed about the name in a meeting. And you know, I'm sure other presidents have had similar mistakes, um, but. I don't know. I feel like the Biden administration could probably make some sort of argument that Trump does not deserve to receive these briefings. But again, if it's just been a courtesy, if it's not signed, if it's not if it's just a socially observable rule as a nice thing to do, um, I think Trump broke a lot of those things. So, to and me, I it's think the Biden administration is petty. I think it's they're being petty. You have to I, respect yeah. the opinions of voters over a period of time, I think. You're just discounting everything that was and saying, we can't let you happen again. That's what it's telling me. It's they're so afraid of him coming back that they have to kill him now. Like that, like that tells me a lot about what they're thinking. The That's why we need the Patriot Party. They're afraid, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, well, afraid for more, the Patriots, the real Patriots. One more Deep thing state. I would add is that problem with Biden is that Biden claims to be like, you know, the uniter. He's the uniter that came into power. His first speech was about how he wanted to unite the country. His yeah. first steps that he did was he tried to impeach Donald Trump. That's really uniting the country. Now he's trying to get rid of Donald Trump from intelligence briefings. He was also trying to make an argument that all this stuff happened, the riot stuff happened because of Donald Trump. And over there, he's trying to make an argument that he's trying to unite the country. Then he passes a bunch of executive orders, which most of all that stuff was all voted on by, by their representatives for the last four years, like border wall funding and all that stuff. He just, I'm just going to abolish all that. I'm going to somehow bring Obamacare back because, you know, I just feel like it. all these stupid Republicans and Democrats argue about this stuff for eight years or four years. They were just wasting everybody's time. And my point is that Donald Trump didn't kick out Barack Obama from intelligence briefings. And if Donald Trump kicked out Barack Obama from intelligence briefings, the same CNN people that we like to talk about how great of a news That's source true. they are would argue that, oh, Donald Trump's racist. Look at him. He kicked out Barack Obama. He doesn't like black people. Black lives matter. Screw Donald Trump. He doesn't like black people. Like, this is the same news people that like to rant about, oh, all this riot stuff happened because of Donald Trump. They don't have any news coverage. They don't have any footings of it. They don't have any, like, you know, clips to show about where Donald Trump incited these riots. But because all these other random bozos have said, oh, Donald Trump incited the riots, CNN's on board because that's how journalism, journalistic integrity. But is. also the people he was talking to screwed him over because after they were arrested, they're like, he told us to storm the Capitol. <laughs> you know, it's like, so like, you, know, you get what you give at a certain point. I, I, just, I just feel like, I mean, my thing about Biden is I'm not going to criticize the fact that he's done what he's done. His people voted him there and all that crap. I'm just criticizing the fact that Biden claims to be a uniter. And no, and he's an authoritarian. Donald Trump I believe or that. Barack Obama or George W. Bush or Bill Clinton claimed to be uniters. They were commanders in chiefs and they were the president and they were supposed to be in charge of the country. And they were the, you know, the voice that mattered. Right. 
Brock Biden comes out since his presidential campaign started saying that he wants to unite the country. Donald Trump is a demagogue, racist, homophobic, bigot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to become president and I'm going to make sure that I am representing both Republicans and Democrats and representing every view that matters and making sure that our legislative process happens in the right way. And he did not do that. His first two weeks, he's passed like 42 executive orders. Like, I don't think it's that much, but he's written 42 executive orders. I think 29 have been passed. I was reading a CNN story where it was like, look at Biden, how great Biden is. In his first two weeks, he's passed 29 executive orders, only surpassed by Richard Nixon. What a great president. (laughs) And my point is that you're claiming all this stuff. You're claiming that you're a uniter. You're claiming that you're trying to go back to the old ways. You're claiming that you're trying to be like Barack Obama, but... I mean, right now, Barack Obama looks like a 10 times better president for most Republicans than Joe Biden does in three weeks. It's because actions speak louder than the words. I think what you're trying to get to is you can call for unity as much as you want, but if your actions signal something else, that's what's going to come across to people. That's And Obama did bring change. That was Obama's message. Biden was uniting. He hasn't united. Let's return to the change. Like Obama brought change. Republicans didn't like his change. Democrats loved his change, but he brought change. It's true. He created this new healthcare program. He created much more funding towards all this stuff that we didn't used to support. And he got a lot of the social policy initiatives from the Democratic Party through. And now, you know, a lot of stuff is legalized that wasn't legalized before. And my point is that's fine. But he he did what he said he was going to do. Biden has not done what he said he's going to do. And if anything, most of us Republican people that are a bunch of losers because we tried to vote for Donald Trump and now Donald Trump's not there and our party hates us now because we're a bunch of stupid people because we decided to go out and vote for our candidate to the That's party. That's true, though. Like You're, you're saying losers. exactly what happened, basically. Like yeah, People feel like we they've just got sad. shafted by their whole party. <laughs> and you know, think about this. We feel like morons because in 2012, we elected, we tried to elect Mitt Romney to become president. Mitt Romney is worse to me than Bernie Sanders is because at least Bernie Sanders lives up to what he says he's going to do. Mitt Romney is like one of the worst people that we could think about right now. He just has personal issues with Trump. Let's be real. Yeah. (laughs) He just personally hates the dude. My point is that these idiots all got elected because of their people in their party and they all use Donald Trump to get elected. And I but they had to. It's like, what are you going to do? Biden, except, I mean, I'm sure. And I'm sure Biden's loved by his people and all this stuff. But like, I'm sure there's a segment of his people that are like, all right, yeah, Biden came here. He's not really done a lot of the progressive stuff that he said he's going to do. All he's doing is what Obama did. Where is like the president of our times who were? Let's be real. Biden was a referendum on Trump. Biden was not elected because Biden's great. Biden was elected because Trump sucks. That's fair. You know, so I don't even think people even think that way. I think they're thinking, great, let's ride out this few years. Let's get some real progressive in there. Let's get AOC got, in there. I got a little bit heated. What are y'all's opinions on this? I'm out. <laughs> no, you're good. I think there was a funny clip of, I think, Trump's inauguration speech. He's like, we will make America great again. And then in uh, Biden's inauguration speech, he said, America is a great country. And it's like, oh, my God, he did it. Trump accomplished it. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> um, but honestly, I think That's funny. Pratik, I think every single presidential speech, when you first come up, when you beat the other party, when you're yeah. getting in office, when you want to get your stuff done, you always talk about unity. You always want to bring Not people Trump. together. <laughs> but I think the difference 
like the the way that you're framing uh, Biden, I think there are two things. One, how he talks about it, and two, what he does. I think he's getting slammed across the board on Republican, you know, media outlets for what he does. Not Fox um, News. But in terms of what he's what he says, I think. Honestly, I attribute this more to his communications team than anyone else, but they're, they're pretty consistent to call out Trump and focus on Trump as some sort of you know, bad influence on the country, as opposed to saying Trump supporters. They always sort of make that distinction. So it's not, you know, it, it's always barring Trump from doing something, trying to erase him from something. It's not so much going after his supporters, but I think that doesn't really recognize, I mean, to step back and look at it. It doesn't recognize the fact that a lot of supporters view personal attacks on Trump as, you know, some on their own. Exactly. Exactly. Attacks on them because Trump was seen as their personal champion. And if you're going after him, you're going after them. And it's like, oh my God, if this guy couldn't do it, you know, this, this rich billionaire, beautiful wife, perfect family, all the rest of it. If they're, you know, shoving him aside, relative to him i have little power in say in the country what's going to happen to me if they can just bully him around he's a former president um how can, yeah so in any case i think like you're saying pratik the unity is not matching the actions but i think every president comes in and says we're gonna bring some unity that, but not trump fair. trump literally no, but- came in and said i'm actually just gonna do this and this is a problem i had with trump he did not have any kind of unity didn't talk about it at all but there is a middle ground. So I think he was far off on one end and I think Biden's on the other end. And I think there is somewhere in the middle that we should be. I also think that, I mean, in that perspective, the people that were in your primaries, you had people like Elizabeth Warren and uh, and Amy Klobuchar that had a lot of opinions. They had a lot of policies that they wanted. They had like a whole like three, four pages on what they wanted to do or even more than three pages to be president. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, dude, I know, right? I know. Trump, Trump uh, just like had like a piece of arts and crafts. He's like, look. Biden, Biden played his cards. All he did was he talked about unity his entire primary time, and then when he gets the position, then he decides to throw out his agenda. None of but none, none of the regular people that were Democrats that voted in those primaries really knew what Biden was going to do. They just knew that Biden was going to do something that is somehow going to resemble Barack Obama. But that That's wasn't Trump. That wasn't Trump. But, my point is that if that's your message, if I was a Democrat, if I was a Republican and let's say you ran on all these causes, like if Donald Trump was like, I'm going to make America great again. We're going to have this wall. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. If Donald Trump comes in and it's like, all right, yeah, I'm not going to do any of that. I'd feel like, man, I'm stupid that I voted for this bozo. And that's my point is that on the other hand, when Biden's whole message that literally got him through the primary is that all these other people let them argue out policy, Buttigieg, who cares about those people? I am just going to talk about how I'm going to create unity. And because I'm the oldest person on stage, people will believe me. And that was Barack Obama's vice president. So it also means I'm not racist. But if you ain't black, you ain't, I mean, they, uh, they, they, yeah, exactly. Well said, so man, like, well said. My point is, that, I mean, his actions were different. If any of the other people said something different, that's fine. If Andrew Yang says he's going he's gonna to pass universal basic income, if he comes in, then he has to institute something with universal basic income. That's all we knew about Andrew Yang. With Biden, 
all we knew literally was that he was going to unite the country and take us back to the old establishment quote establishment status quo days of Barack Obama. But but apart from like general democratic things like the environment and like fifteen dollars, yeah, yeah. but he, he believed everything with everybody else. That's my point. They all believe all that stuff. Like every one of the Democrats on stage believe climate change is a thing. Every one of the Democrats on stage. Um, believe certain things with what they wanted to do with China or what they wanted to do. They all hated Trump with a passion. That's the thing. They all decided to call him a misogynist, racist, bigot, all that stuff. Which, if any Republican was to say that about any Democrat who happens to be a minority, they're automatically a racist, homophobic, bigot. That's the fact. So, like, I just feel like with Biden, that was his, his rise to fame. And he didn't really do anything special as vice president. He was a senator for like 30 years, only has like so many bills that he's done in like those 30 years. I think even Klobuchar beats him in the bill count. So like in that whole argument, you're making an argument that Biden was great. Biden got elected. Biden did all this stuff that got him elected. That's fine. But his core message was unity and he's not living up to his message. If he, if he in the future does things like, okay, well, I'm not going to do this, this, and this on Trump, blah, 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 blah. Then he would have been a messenger. You would have been a unifier. Donald Trump didn't throw Hillary Clinton in yeah. prison. Let, that was one of his messages. Let, let's hand this off to Nick. Nick, uh, okay. I, I know you have some response to this, so let's hear it. Uh, I was just going to say on the unity, the more I hear you talk about this critique, uh, the more I honestly agree. I think he came in with a big promise of bringing people together over what has been a incredibly divided last year on every single issue, racial justice, healthcare, energy, like everything. People are in full disagreement on it. And it's very hard to see building bridges across these topics. Heck, we're, we can't even agree on what's real, what's legitimate, what happened in the election, the rest of it. No what one knows. Countries? Um, but I think on the unity side, um, the more I did hear you talk about it, it sort of convinced me that even though he's failed on that, I think at least on the Democratic side, he did try to unify the party by bringing people like Pete Buttigieg, a rising star who dropped out pretty early, sort of to give him the win. Um in as secretary of transportation he brought in kamala harris who went after him in the first debate and said him a joe biden joe biden you were in favor <laughs> of segregation and against busing i was the first girl who was bused in my district like how can you stand up here and take a stance on racial issues when that was your position and he brings her into into the fold as his vice he also president called him a child molester so so Trump's I think <laughs> like, so, how would you get over that unless it's some political game? It's like far above. No, that's the thing. I think in terms of bringing people to, and for Bernie, for example, a lot of Bernie's union and environmental ideas, Biden has been pushed to the left on those and adopted some of Bernie's principles. So I think in terms of trying to hold the Democratic Party together, I think um, I don't want to call him like an old glue. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. like, but essentially he's trying to, even though I agree with you, he's not he's not doing what he said he would do as far as uniting the country. I, frankly, I think it's impossible to do so right now. I think people need time before they're ready for that. But uh, at least as far as unity within the Democratic Party, I think he's accomplished that for the most part now. I mean, maybe something will come out with the socialists like a year from now that throws everything <laughs> away. But for now, he does. Um, and I think the Republicans have an issue, like you were saying on your end. Yeah where it's like, where do you go from the future? Do you have that unifying figure? I don't know who it would be. It's not McConnell. 
Yeah, but do you not think that values have to overlap between Democrats and Republicans? All Americans should have a certain, if it's 60% of values, we should have 60% of values that we're all certain of. Like there's no, there's no question of real or not real. They just are. And we don't have that at all. So when I talk about unity, it's not within a party because that actually drives more division. If I'm unifying to make my party stronger, that act, that creates a bigger enemy because you're a bigger threat to them. Um, so I, to me, unity means unity with all with all Americans. He's still my president if I'm not a Democrat. So him him being like, oh, I'll take some of the Democratic ideas. How does that inspire me? You know, how does how does that inspire half the country that feels like they were just gypped? They feel like they were just gypped by their party, everyone basically, the whole system, everyone. Like, what do you what do you tell those people? And how do you even in years time convince them? Oh, yeah, now you can come back. You've gotten over it. You're you're good now. How, like, is like in Israel, have any of those guys gotten over their situation? Like people don't just get over things. I don't well, think like, they're like going to the boil. Israeli, I feel like the Israeli Palestinian conflict is a little bit different. <laughs> it's a little extreme. I, I'm not. I, I agree with that. But, you but no, fair enough. Saying. It's no, it's along the lines. Right? Yeah. That's all I have I to mean, say. And I, would, I would agree with Nick on that, though. He had to unify the Democratic Party if that does mean anything. I mean, that's a good thing for his party. Like, for the DNC, and I agree, yeah. much more control. Our RNC is dismantled. Like, I mean, if, if that's the one thing that's good about Biden compared to Donald Trump is that he kept his party together. I mean, in his first two, three weeks. But, but Trump's goal was to day, smash the party with a hammer. Exactly. It wasn't ever yeah, to keep the party the goal, The goals were different. Donald Trump got got elected and got into his position because a lot of the people that voted for him wanted something new and they felt that the republican party was failing them that's why donald trump became president now if the republican party feels like you know they're much better than donald trump and that's why they got all their votes so be it that's why the new party is coming into existence and then we can debate about all day whether the gop did the right thing or did the wrong thing but i would agree with nick on what he said like it makes sense. He has done a lot of stuff that, I mean, he should do as, you know, the face of that party. And, I mean, the fact that he was able to get get off of, like, you know, you know, once calling, once being called a child molester from Kamala Harris and making her vice president, good for him. I mean, it makes us seem kind of stupid that we're just like, all right, yeah, Kamala Harris, she's the greatest. But, I mean, in the end of the day, like, I guess I, I agree with Nick on most of what he said. So we've we've actually been going for quite a long time now. I thought we've yeah. had a pretty good conversation. The one thing I do want to like dive into, probably I guess next conversation would be, I want to start with zero party and build up everything to what we would see as a good party. Because where we obviously know we don't like the GOP, and even Nick, I think you could even say you're a little bit, at least a little bit disgruntled with the Democrats. Would you agree? No, sorry, <laughs> it cut out for a second. I, okay. I I heard Nick. Couldn't you at least, and then it, it cut out. So, uh, but I'm assuming you were saying with the yeah. Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's always room for improvement. I think it should be done piecemeal in most cases. But if you're moving too slowly, I think the voters and the constituents have a right to tell you to get out, and it's time for someone new to come in. All I'm saying is, I think we should have just set out a goal. I think there are there are common values between Americans that we just don't see enough. We're not presented enough. We're only presented opposition. So that's all we think there is there. I think we should spend time on seeing what we could all agree on. So that could be the base of whatever party we have in the future. So hopefully next conversation, we can dive into that. I think that'd be really productive. So thank you everyone for tuning in. Pratik, great as always. It's a pleasure having you on, Nick, our expert in multiple fields. We got water, aerospace, uh, inter international relations, um and uh whatever Makes else jack of all trades jack of all i'm trades. also 
an expert in losing money on the stock market. So we can in add GameStop. that to my <laughs> long list of accolades. <laughs> Pleasure being on. Uh, well, yeah, thank you for being on. Thank you everyone for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Um, see you then. Later. See you guys.